0: Well, good evening. Welcome to our 14th lecture as we've been going through our course in historical theology talking specifically of the doctrine of God and the Trinity. And there's some other things we get to in there as well. But specifically, again, if, in case you're new, joining us, um, we've been going through the early church fathers starting with kind of the first first century and really working our way up to... Um, I'm going to continue to the to our modern era. Um, and we're going to look at just kind of these key figures uh, throughout the history of the Christian tradition and look at how we see the doctrine of God and the Trinity develop uh, throughout history. So this is lecture number 14. It's actually part two. This is a two-part series. This one we are talking about, or I'm sorry, talking through uh, the theology of Hilary of Poitiers. Poitiers, he's a, he's a Frenchman, our first Frenchman that we've discussed so far. So this is part two. And um, again, if you haven't seen part one, obviously go back and, and check it out. But we are going through his work on the Trinity, De Trinitate. And last lecture, we stopped and we went through book four, and we're, I'm sorry, book three. And we are going to be taking up book four and working all the way through book ten. And if you recall from the first lecture, uh, we are going to discuss the ultimate, not the ultimate, well, I guess it could be, but. Um, His blunder, Hillary's big blunder in his life of denying that Christ felt pain, the painlessness of Christ, and this is where we see his really rich theology just go down. So (coughs) with that said, let's get started. So, So book four is where Hillary begins to, oh, let's go through a few of these real quick. I always forget the slides, I'm sorry, buddy. So there it is, fourteenth lecture, part two. Back to a little quote from him. This was from the previous lecture. You can kind of stare at that until we get to the next slide. So all right, so so here at book four, Hilary begins to get into the heart of his doctrine of the Trinity. In the early sections, he considers the creation accounts of Genesis one and John one. When I say early sections, I mean early sections of this book. So Genesis one and John one, whereby bringing them together, the act of creation is brought about through divine dialogue of the father saying to the son let there be and the son executes the father's will and brings about creation through him ex nihilo proverbs 8 as we've seen throughout uh, these lectures um, is the quintessential patristic creation passage and Hilary marks on the wisdom of god saying she was with him not only present with him in the beginning but setting things in order Hilary writes, The Father by his commands is the cause, the Son by his execution of the things commanded sets in order. The distinction between the persons is marked by the work assigned to each. When it says, Let us make, creation is identified with the word of command. But when it is written, I was with him, setting them in order, God reveals that he did not do the work in isolation. So the Father and the Son and the Spirit together as one, creating as one. The divine economy reveals the distinction of persons within the Godhead bringing about a greater understanding for us in the reading of God's activity. In what initially sounds like God is just talking out loud to himself, is really the Father talking to the Son as they rejoice in the manifestation of their divine will in creation. Hillary delves further into theological proofs of the divine nature of the son, whereby the father and the son, the one who commands and the one who creates are both true god. The logic of this assertion, of this assertion, excuse me, Hillary notes, is that when god says let there be a firmament and the text says, quote, "and god made the firmament," end quote, only the distinction of persons, not a difference of power and nature is being asserted. Under the title God, he reveals first the thought of him who spoke, then the action of him who created. Thus, the activity of the Godhead demonstrates that, quote, the power to give effect to the word of creation belongs only to that nature with whom to speak is the same as to fulfill. And as we talked about throughout our lectures about the, the understanding of nature, we're speaking of the essence of God, whereas the heretics of this time were confusing names. They were confusing names with nature and making them um, uh, equal terms, and that was really the problem. Hold on a second. And from this unity of divine dialogue and activity, Hillary formulates a definition of absolute power, with it being proper to both God the Father and the Son. Absolute power is this that its possessor can execute as agent whatever his words as speaker can express. When unlimited power of expression is combined with unlimited power of execution, then this creative power, commensurate with the commanding word, possesses the true nature of God. Thus, the Son of God is not false God, nor, by adop- nor God by adoption, nor God by gift of the name, but true God." Of the power displayed in the Incarnation, Hillier writes, it is a, quote, a great work the unbelieving soul cannot grasp. End quote. The godless just see the feeble flesh in Jesus' helpless state at birth, growing into manhood, living as a carpenter who was then arrested, scourged, and hung on a cross to suffer and die. The mystery of God was hidden beneath his flesh, and that the Logos added these capacities of humanity to his divinity which the divine nature could not and did not possess. And he did so while retaining his full divinity, never ceasing to be God when he took on man. Hilary notes on the display of divine power in the display of weakness and suffering as he came to be what he previously was not. The person of Jesus Christ is folly for the faithless, but the wisdom of God in that they cannot see that Christ is the power of God. Hilary writes, So Christ in your eyes is not God because he, who was from eternity, was born, because the unchangeable grew with years, the impassible suffered, the living died, the dead lives. It is not all this simply to say that he, being God, was omnipotent? And I think Anselm later on makes the same kind of dis- uh, distinction, not distinction, but um, comment about all these things that you see God, who is not human, do in his humanity just as a testimony to the omnipotent power of God. Only God could take on flesh. Flesh can never take on God, but God is showing the range of his power in becoming man. To understand God's wisdom, to grasp his glory, Hillary writes, God cannot be apprehended except through God, even as also God accepts no worship from us us except through God. And then he says, we must learn from God what we are to think of God. We have no source of knowledge but himself. It's a really good quote. And then later on, did I? Okay, 24. Yes, okay. And then I have this footnoted here. It's a really good statement. He says much later on, but I put it here. He says, God is a simple being. We must understand him by devotion and confess him by reverence. He is to be worshiped not pursued by our senses for a conditioned and weak nature cannot grasp with the guesses of its imagination the mystery of an infinite and omnipotent nature in god is no variability no parts as of a composite divinity that in him will should follow inaction speech silence or work rest or that he should not will ...without passing from some other mental state to volition... ...or speak without breaking the silence with his voice... ...or act without going forth to labor. He is not subject to the laws of nature, for nature has received its law from him. He never suffers weakness or change when he acts, for his power is boundless... ...as the Lord said, Father, all things are possible unto thee. In his concluding paragraph of Book 5, Hilary sums up his exposition of the Godhead... In the Godhead itself, he writes, That true and absolute and perfect doctrine which forms our faith is the confession of God from God and God in God by no bodily process but by divine power, by no transfusion from nature into nature, but through the secret and mighty working of the one nature, God from God, not by division or extension or emanation, but by the operation of a nature which brings into existence by means of birth, a nature one with itself. So, as you see, it got a lot of quotes here from our very profound thinker. Uh, again, it's unfortunate that he is not um, uh, given, you know, given the opportunity to speak more in modern literature. I think there is a little bit of of interest that's been perking up about him lately. A few a few recent works, but other than that unfortunately, it's kind of like he's kind of a hands-off kind of guy. But I think he's great. Okay. A common misstep in the heretical thinkers of their time, and we see them, it's the same as, same as today, is they allow anthropomorphic and figurative language to control their interpretations of Scripture. Such error is the folly of many, who nevertheless aspire to be thoroughly biblical in their doctrine, are in gross error, promoting doctrine that is nowhere close to the biblical teaching. Hilary makes this observation multiple times, noting the error of taking analogies too far. And that he says, Human analogies are not a perfect application for the mysteries of divine power. Rather, their value is in their comparison between the material and spiritual, with the objective of raising us closer to apprehend the the majesty of God. And that's a very important statement. It's to compare the material and the spiritual we, we don't take them literally we don't take the when when we are referred to as sheep we don't take that literal so why is it then do you have heretics that take those types of language and figure language and then appropriate it of a one-to-one of god uh, well, god doesn't have eyes he doesn't have ears he doesn't have fingers he doesn't have breath uh, but that is the the common error that the heretics unfortunately um, fall into and he says, however, and here's where folly rushes in hard when we do not accept what Scripture says. Quote, when we are told that God was born from God, we must accept it as true that he was born and be content with that. So he's saying, let God be God. Let his word be word and every man a liar. Romans 3, 4. He's kind of saying that. But, but the lack of discernment in handling such passages whereby one gives priority to the earthly manner of discourse in one's interpretation of Scripture is disastrous when it comes to contemplating the divine essence. Hillary is correct when he says we need to accept what Scripture says about the procession of the Son from the Father, but we must not assign the Father's act of begetting the Son according to human bodily categories. Nothing bodily or lifeless or material has a place in the attributes of God. Rather, quote, being immutable, the divine essence has no incongruities within it. God, because he is God, is unchangeable, and the unchangeable God begat God, In quote. And Hillary concludes using creedal language to express this mystery that the birth of the Son from the Father is not a, quote, prolongation of God in space, end quote, not an extension, but rather... Quote, light from light 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 from light shows a unity and continuity in expressing the divine essence. In Book 7, Hillary continues advancing his arguments against the wild extravagance of modern heresy. That's his phrase, not mine. We definitely can see that in our modern times. In summarizing what has been discussed and refuted, Hillary confesses that the straight path of truth that each divine person is in the unity yet no person is the one god it has been shown that christ has the full deity of the father whereby his name his birth his nature his power and his own assertion as found in scripture leaves us without a doubt of this origin his origin. excuse me Hilary writes two truths are combined in one proposition that his works are done likewise "...proves his birth, that they are the same works, proves his nature." Against the raging and cunning heretics, Hillary says his position is impregnable. John five nineteen through 23 demonstrates the divinity of Christ, God of God, and that he is, quote, is the Son because he can do nothing of himself. He is God because whatever the Father does, he does the same. They, too, are one because he is equal in honor to the Father and does the very same works. He is not the Father because he is sent. He is sent. End quote. He didn't say it twice. I did. But that's an important distinction. Again, he is the one sent. So these things, these terms, you can use them as adjectives or, um, you know, nouns, pronouns, however you want to think and describe the relations between the father the son the spirit and that is where the distinction is not the divine nature not the essence it's the names it's the relationships the foundation of hillary's doctrine of the trinity is in the ultimate oneness that forms the means of articulating the tri-unity of god not just title conferment if the triunity of god were derived from the diversity of god the error of tritheism would be constantly nipping at our heels but having the oneness of God as our anchor point places strictures on our language and interpretation, whereby when we see distinctions of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the unit of pressure of oneness forces us to ground our doctrine in the simple oneness of God. Listen to Hilary Dew as such. He notes, God's attributes are not attached to different portions of him. Rather, God, who is life, is not a being Built up of various and lifeless portions, he is power, in not compact of feeble elements, light, intermingled with no shades of darkness, spirit that he can harmonize with no incongruities. All that is within him is one. What is spirit is light and power and life, and what is life is light and power and spirit. Now, interestingly, Hilary says that God's nature cannot suffer change, but is incapable of increase, not diminution 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 (laughs) diminution obviously we don't use that word anymore why so i can't even say it (laughs) diminution anyways so he speaks of the analogy of fire to express his point casting light no pun intended on this meaning the flame of a fire kindles another, but without division, separation, or change to the property of fire itself. But in the second flame, the first flame lives on, and the two are one, deriving light from light, though physically impossible to divide or distinguish the two. Now, it's a great example, it's a common example of the fathers that think about a candle. If you light a candle, and you take the candle to light another candle, the light transfers to the new candle. But you don't see it. Dimin- <laughs> I can't say that word. You don't see it diminution, <laughs> diminute. You don't see it diminute. It just catches it, and there's no loss to the other flame. You cannot see a loss. You can't see a change, right? Diminution. We'll get. Well, yeah. Okay. Anyways, so the eternal divine essence did not exist at a time when the son was not one with the father. However. With the analogy of the flame, we can observe a material comparison that shows us the possibility within created matter of two objects united as one without a visible distinction or division. Again, going back to the analogy, we have a living material analogy. Not to say that God's not living, sorry. We have a material analogy of showing a spiritual truth that we cannot see. The material enables us to, in a sense, understand the. That which is immaterial, that we cannot see, and Hilary sees that the nature of God increases in that God. I'm sorry, in that giving birth to the sun is comparable to a flame begetting another flame. As we take the candle from one to the other, that flame begets another flame upon the wick. However, excuse me, as Hilary notes, often in careful scrutiny, such analogies are meant as an aid for apprehension of the faith. Prime example. God doesn't need a wick to beget or to ignite, right? So we got to always remember our analogy stops short. One, it's a material analogy. Two, God is incomprehensible, um, but it's meant to show us, right? As I think about Romans 1, 19 through 21, right? The the things, the created things were meant for us to see the invisible nature and eternal power of God, her internal, eternal nature, divine, something like that. Anyways, um, hmm. where's that? Okay. So throughout our study of Hilary, it is readily apparent that the Holy Spirit has remained in the shadows, has it not? But in Book 8, he devotes some attention to the Spirit, specifically seeking to, quote, expose their license of speculation, he's speaking of the heretics, regarding the origin of the Spirit, which we call, the scripture calls, Pericles. Scripture is quite clear on this, writes Hilary. Quoting John 16, 12-15, Hilary says of the Spirit, quote, Accordingly, he receives from the Son, who is both sent by him and proceeds from the Father. Quote. However, Hilary notes that this raises a question. He says, Now I ask whether to receive from the Son is the same thing as to proceed from the Father. Interesting. But if one believes that there is a difference between receiving from the Son and proceeding from the Father... Surely to receive from the Son and to receive from the Father will be regarded as one and the same thing. Quote. They are the same because Christ says that everything the Father has is his. The unity of the Father and the Son, writes Hilary, makes no difference from whom the Spirit is received, because that which is given by the Father according to Scripture is also given by the Son. Now for those of you that have been paying attention, as we finish off through the Cappadocians, Do you see red flags? Well, they're not like red flags like a heresy alert. But what did you catch? I'll tell you. So his position on this point is another reason why the Eastern Church was not receptive of his doctrine of the Trinity. Do you remember the first reason I gave? had to do with his writing style, his language, right? He was a, a Frenchman. Now, I guess he was writing in French. No, he's writing in Latin. Yeah, yeah, duh, he's writing in Latin, okay. But if you followed me here, you can see that Hilary has made the unity of God so absolute that it dissolves the key feature of the Cappadocian doctrine of the Trinity, that of the Eastern Church, the hallmark of logical Trinitarian thought, the monarchy of the Godhead. Even though Hilary sees the Father is the origin, the source, What he just said kind of dissolves that distinction. In case you don't know, according to the Eastern doctrine, if the sending of the Spirit is ascribed to the Father and equally to the Son, then we have two gods. Eastern thought says the Father is the source, with the Son generating from the Father and the Spirit's spiration from the Father through the Son. With the Father designated as the source of the Godhead, we are able to maintain monotheism and affirm a triune expression of it. So for Hilary, the notion of the spirit of God in respect of each person of the Trinity is for the purpose of distinguishing God from composite matter. Only in composite matter can be omnipresent. Not that God is matter, but that thus God is omnipresent. He writes, hold on. He says... In his infinite power, God is present everywhere and nowhere absent, and manifests his whole self through his own, and signifies that his own are not else than himself, so that where they are, he may be understood to be himself. So, with consistency, Hilary resorts to the simplicity of God to provide a metaphysical grammar to the biblical doctrine of divine omnipresence. He is everywhere present. All of him in every place, but not located in every place. God cannot be located in a place because God is everywhere present. A simple essence cannot be in multiple places. It just is in every place. Everywhere, completely, in its fullness. There's no one thing of God and then he exists part in China, then he exists part 13.8 billion light years away, it's all of God in every place, in every single moment, at all times. Yeah, wrap wrap your brain around that one. It's mind-boggling. No matter where you're at, the full presence of God, Father, Son, Spirit, is there. Hillary delves into the topic of co-inherence of the Godhead. If our doctrine is not clear and consistent with the divine essence then we are in jeopardy of landing into tritheism. Excuse me. The challenge is put forth regarding the spirit of God and the spirit of the Son indwelling in those who believe. A brief side note. I already covered this. I don't know why I have it here, but I will cover it again. Omnipresence refers to God's immediate presence in which he is fully present to all of creation. I already covered this. Um... Oh, I didn't cover this part. Okay. Um, and in doing so, we retain God's distinction from creation. His immediate presence speaks to God's special activity in His creation. So there's immediate presence, which is He's fully present. And then His immediate presence, so I am immediate, I M M E D I A T E, immediate presence, speaks to God's special activity in His creation. So the distinction allows us to differentiate the two aspects of God's relation to His creation. For example, we know that scripture says that he cannot be in the presence of sin, right? Habakkuk 1.13, Psalm 5.4. But that cannot mean God cannot be present around sinners. Otherwise, God would not be in the world. Now, I don't mean God's in the world like he's temporal. But as far as everywhere present, all of one's fully, all of him. So no creature can escape the holy eye of God. So we then can say that God's presence is immediate to all of creation, everywhere known, all at once, all of Him at the same time. But He won't immediately act in communion with sinners because of His holiness. The immediate presence of God is an inward work, known only to them, to them, to those whom God wants to reveal Himself to. So I hope you understand that. Um, if not, just watch that section and lecture again. I'm not going to repeat it. But getting back to Hillary, he writes that the indwelling of God in the believer is not a, quote, joint dwelling, it is one indwelling, yet an indwelling under the mysterious semblance of a joint indwelling. For it is not the case that two spirits indwell, nor is one that indwells different from the other, End quote. And we can again use the analogy of fire to shed light, again, no pun intended, on how this could be so. So in logical fashion, Hilary asserts Christ's oneness with God's Spirit in that, quote, what is of God is also of Christ, and what is of Christ is also of God. Christ cannot be anything different from what God is. Christ, therefore, is God, one Spirit with God, end quote. Hilary continues further in his scriptural proofs demonstrating the deity of the Spirit, looking to such, pa- looking to such passages as Acts 1, 4-5 and 8, 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, 8, 11, Ephesians 4, 5-6. I probably should have put on a slide, but I didn't think about that. And John 6, 40, and others. In the closing of Book 8, Hillary offers an exposition of Colossians 1, 15-20, which is worthy of close study indeed. His aim is to demonstrate that the unity and the fullness of the Godhead remained unbroken in Christ's birth. In his examination of Philippians 2, 6-7, through 7, Hillary shows how the Apostle does not perceive Christ being in the form of God prior to his incarnation as a form of another God. Rather, the Apostle assumes that this God, of which Christ is in the form, is the one true God of the Bible. He who is in the form of God is God. He cannot be other than God since God is the necessary being. The Son possesses naturally from him, in whose glory he is, the property of divinity." end quote that was hillary specifically hillary seeks to now answer two questions he says is christ the visible likeness of the invisible god and can the infinite god be presented to view under the likeness of finite form two questions so hillary writes that we know that christ is a spirit and god is a spirit so if if we bound his form in corporeal form then he cannot be the likeness of the invisible God, because a finite representation cannot bear the image of the infinite. Right? It makes sense. The finite cannot represent the infinite. But we are not left without an answer. Christ told his disciples that he who sees him sees the Father, and this is evident in the works he does. If he does the work of the Father, then he has the same nature as the Father, since only divinity can do which is proper to divinity. And from his reading of Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Hilary concludes that through the power of these works, as in the power perceived from which such activity occurred, Christ, therefore, is the image of God. And as the image of God, Christ is meant to express the nature of divinity, not the form of God materially speaking, so that by his exercise of the powers of the divine nature, that nature is in Christ. End quote. The divine nature is perceived in the things that have been made, Romans one twenty, And in Colossians 1.16-17, Hillary sees the origin of created things being described in, from, through, and for Christ. In verses 18-20, through 20, which Hillary refers to as the dispensation of Christ assuming a body, quote, the apostle has assigned the spiritual mysteries their material effects, quote. So, Hillary sees two aspects of the divine economy represented by the image of God in Christ. As the image of the invisible God, Christ is the head of his body, the church. And as he is called the beginning, quote, the beginning, he is the firstborn of every creature from the dead, for the express purpose that in all things, quote, he might have the preeminence, being for us the body, while he's also the image of God, since he, who is the firstborn of created things, is at the same time the firstborn for eternity. End quote. Hope you kind of see that, that pairing, that relationship there. What Hillary is getting at is that by Christ being the firstborn of every created thing, since he possesses in himself the origin of all creation, and being head of his body the church, the firstborn from the dead, Christ has preeminence because all things consist for him, in him, and are reconciled in him. Therefore, Christ as the image of God is the origin of creation and the origin of recreation. Us new creatures, right? Excuse me. In conclusion, Hillary asks, Do you now perceive what it is to be the image of God? It means that all things are created in him and through him, end quote. But there's a greater redemptive cosmological reality to be observed. He writes hold on a second here oh, in my jaw. I got a lot of slides here, so I gotta just read them slowly. So Hilary says or writes Whereas all things are created in him, understand that he, whose image he is, also creates all things in him. And since all things which are created in him are also created through him, recognize that in him who is the image there is present, the nature of him, whose image he is. For through himself he creates the things which are created in him, just as through himself all things are reconciled in him. Next slide. Inasmuch as they are reconciled in him, recognize in him the nature of the Father's unity, reconciling all things to himself in him. Inasmuch as all things are reconciled through him, perceive him reconciling the Father in himself all things which he reconciled through himself. Man, how many himselfs are there? (laughs) I just realized that there's a lot of in him himselfs. All right, last slide. For the same apostle says, "But all things are from from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave unto us the ministry of reconciliation." To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. You compare with this the whole mystery of the faith of the gospel. For he who is seen when Jesus is seen, who works in his works and speaks in his words, also reconciles in his reconciliation. And for this cause, in him and through him, there is no reconciliation. Because the Father, abiding in him through a like nature, restored the world to himself by reconciliation through and in him. End quote. <clears throat> That's a lot. I got to recover. All right. So, what implications can we draw from Hillary's statement? What oh. for him and so? For lost that okay. What implications can we draw from Hillary's statement for him and so he was nothing to fear? I must have skipped some. Oh, oh, I see. Oh, sorry, I had the wrong page. Okay. So, one more time, third time. What implications can we draw from Hillary's statement? Well, as the, image, as the image, Christ, in whom all the fullness of deity dwells bodily in him, through him, from him, for him, all things have been created. In Christ, taking on flesh and reconciling the, word, the world to God, in a consummative manner, the fullness of the Godhead is present in bodily shape, being fully present in his body, the church. In this way... Hillary can say that in Christ's birth, him taking on flesh, the God-man is true God. The Godhead fully dwells wholly in the person of Christ, quote, so dwelling with the two are one, and so one, that the one who is God does not differ from the one, from the other who is God, both so equally divine as a perfect birth engendered perfect God, end quote. So in some way, the way he constructs everything Is that in the person of Christ, all of God is fully in him and fully present to the church in the body of Christ. It's a very, it's a very, yeah, his redemptive cosmological reality. That's how we look at it, redemptive cosmological reality. Very, very brilliant, very, um, I mean, definitely wordy. No one says in him or himself like that, like these guys do. (laughs) So, okay. All right, so. Now we get into the dubious doctrine of the painlessness of Christ. This, this was Hilary Poitier's fall from glory, if you will. His point of coming down from, from the ivory tower of theologians. So, so as I said, for book 10, well let me restate that. For many people that have studied his work, book 10 is where Hilary's brilliant theology finds its end. It is here, some say, that Hillary loses his orthodoxy, thus loses Christ and the faith. Now, I don't want to be the one that's going to be, you know, determining if Hillary is a Christian or not. Um, I think it's important that we stay away from that. I mean, there are some definitely statements that we will say are heresy, but I do not want to say that he's lost Christ, he's lost his faith. But I will say he is definitely uh, in grave error here. So so in book 10, Hillary takes up the notion of Christ suffering in the flesh. And he, he believes that while he suffered, he did not feel pain. So why does Hillary think that? Prior to his discussion on it, Hillary responds to heretical claims against Christ having an impassable nature because of the fear he demonstrated during his Passion Week, thus ultimately submitting to suffering. He challenges their reading of these texts, Matthew twenty six thirty eight through thirty nine, and then Luke twenty three forty six. He asks asking, why would he, who drove away the fears of death in his apostles, with the inheritance of glory to come, fear suffering and death? If death is life, he cites Matthew ten thirty eight thirty nine. He says, what pain can we think he had to suffer in the mystery of death, who rewards with life? Those who die for him. Quote. And he questions why would Christ, whose life and act of death that were by his own choosing, according to the plan of God, be stricken with fear, as the one who has the power to lay down his life and to take it up again. And so he concludes stating if Christ died of his own will, and through his own will gave back his spirit, death had no terror because it was in his own power. Interesting to say the least. He continues his dialectical monologues, asking that if Christ death if Christ did fear death, was it terrible to his spirit or to his body? It cannot be to his body because the holy one will not see corruption as Scripture foretold, and he cites Psalm fifteen ten. Nor can it be his spirit, in that we see Lazarus rejoicing in Abraham's bosom, and obviously Christ. Is, su- is supremely greater than them. Therefore, the abyss of hell is not wanting, not waiting for him, Excuse me, and so he has nothing to fear. In conclusion, Hillary rather pointedly states, It is foolish and absurd that he should fear death, who could lay down his soul and take it up again, who, to fulfill the mystery of human life, was about to die of his own free will. He cannot fear death, whose power and purpose in dying is to die, but for a moment... Fear is incompatible with willingness to die and the power to live again, for both of these rob death of his terrors. But Hillary questions the issue further, inquiring about the kind of body the man Jesus was that pain could dwell in, in his crucified, bound, and pierced body. Quote. The human body, writes Hillary, is endued with life and feeling by conjunction of a sentient, sentient soul. Thus it is the soul that feels various sensations, cold, heat, pleasure, hunger, pain, etc. And through a, quote, transfusion of the soul, end quote, with the body, when the body is pierced, for example, it is the soul that feels and suffers pain. Again, I'm just citing here, I'm just citing uh, Hillary. The implication of this psychosomatic pathology is that when a limb becomes diseased, it loses the feeling of living flesh and it can be cut or burnt and no pain is sensed because the soul is no longer mingled with it. Interesting. And when a limb needs to be cut off, drugs can lull the soul to sleep, whereby the limb can be removed without pain. Now, it is interesting that at this time, and Hillary's writing this, he's in the 4th, 3rd, 4th century? Boy, I'm sorry, I completely forgot. 300s, late 300s. What did I say about him? Hillary is 315 and 367, so 4th century. No. Yes, 4th century. He says here they had drugs to lull the soul to sleep. I always thought that didn't come until much later. So they had drugs to put somebody to sleep to remove a limb. Thank God for medicine. Anyways... So, Hillary's estimation of this phenomena leads him to conclude that, quote, the body lives by admixture admixture with a weak soul, that it is subject to the weaknesses of pain, end quote. In contrast to the nature of the human body, Jesus' body, which is of true humanity after the likeness of our flesh, Hillary writes, when it was struck with blows, smitten with wounds, or bound with ropes, or lifted on high, he felt the force of the suffering, but without its pain. So how does he justify this? He identifies a key distinction between Christ's body and our bodies. He says his conception was in the likeness of our nature, not in the possession of our faults. End quote. Hmm. The likeness of our nature, not in the possession of our faults. So is pain a fault? I don't know. In Christ's taking on flesh, his sinlessness, due to his divine nature, meant that the body he took, quote, possessed a unique nature of its own, end quote. It could suffer, but it could not feel pain. Hillary's position stems from his understanding of the term likeness. For Hilary, likeness implies the truth of his birth, but it removes sin and human weakness from him. In Christ's decision to take on flesh in the form of a servant, Hilary bifurcates the incarnation, delineating the human and the divine side of Christ, stating that, quote, Christ as man submitted to a human birth, yet as Christ he was free from the infirmity of our degenerate race. So, so for Hillary, it's imperative that he retain the fullness of each nature in the person of Christ. With the distinction noted noted above, right? So that he, basically he is taking our human nature, but because of his sinlessness, infirmity, right? Is part of the, the, the uh, degenerate race, and Christ doesn't, doesn't take that on because of his sinlessness. So the word taking on flesh, because he is the word and is not of human origin, does not, quote, vacate the nature of his source, end quote, and while we must believe that the word is flesh, which he made, in his dwelling among us, quote, the flesh was not the word, but was the flesh of the word dwelling in the flesh. So again, the flesh was not the word, okay, but was the flesh of the word dwelling in the flesh, end quote. And because of the unique nature of his body, brought forth through spiritual conception, not a natural one. The word had the power to expel the infirmities of the body. Now, Hillary is quite confident that he's proved his point. But listen to what he says in the very last few sentences of Book 10. And I, and I emboldened something here. See if we can figure out why I emboldened it. He says, He was born for us, suffered for us, died for us, rose again for us. This alone is necessary for our salvation. To confess the Son of God risen from the dead, why then should we die in this state of godless unbelief? If Christ, ever secure of his divinity, made clear to us his death, himself indifferent to death, yet dying to assure that it was true humanity that he had assumed, why should we use this very confession of the Son of God that, for us, he became son of man and died as the chief weapon to deny his divinity? If Christ doesn't feel pain, how did he suffer for us? Okay, he felt a blunt force. He felt pressure. He says he suffered for us. So I don't think uh, he's proved his point. I think he goes back to what the church has always confessed about our incarnate Lord. He suffered for us, but isn't really kind of going to that. So I I don't think he proved his case. I think At the end of the day, he made his confession, and uh, ultimately that's what um, his confession meant, is he... He was fully uh, a believer of Christ. He believed he suffered. He he born, he suffered, he died for us. All that. So I think that that's what his confession is. But somehow, he got off on a weird, weird kind of tangent. So, unless I'm reading it wrong, I wonder if he's being kind of he's actually having a discussion with somebody else. No, let me see himself indifferent to death he and dying. He had assumed, why should we use this very confession of the Son of God, that for us he became Son of Man and died as the chief weapon to deny his divinity? No, I think he just, no, he's just making the case here that when we look to the things to, he obviously makes a distinction that God is impassable, but Christ in the person, God became passable, and he's going through all the things of a passable nature. So kind of like what he said earlier, what I said earlier why would we now, why would we deny his divinity because he, lived in 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 humanity and so we would say we don't we don't that's the demonstration of his divinity of his omnipotence of what of suffering of suffering for us of dying for us the omnipotent god died for us so we can say theologically accurately biblically say when christ died on the cross god died on the cross That wasn't in here. This was extra stuff for you all. So, in our study of Hillary, it was apparent that his theological prowess and apologetical resolve were quite remarkable. His engagement with his subject matter was intense. His rigorous attention to the details of an argument and ability to make tight logical connections was astounding. So it is perplexing to see how someone of his intellectual stature could arrive at the conclusion he did regarding Christ's painlessness. On the one hand, there is a speculative logic that makes sense. But on the other, if Christ is to redeem man, then he had to take up man. All that is proper to man minus sinfulness. And pain is a distinct aspect of the human condition that can drastically impact what we do. Fear of pain and actual pain in the flesh can cause us to cave into our own sinful desires. Not that Christ is sinful. Talk about us. Uh, and we turn, can turn away from the Lord. And if Jesus was to redeem man for his weakness, then he must also over, overcome pain of the body in order to be obedient to the Father. No human can look at the passion of Christ without first intuitively considering the pain he went through. And that is one of the glorious aspects of the resurrection. No more pain. And that is what we are promised in Revelation 21 four. So that concludes our study of Hilary. Again, that's the book I have posted there. Saint Hilary of Poitiers, uh, the Trinity, the Fathers of the Church series—a very good series. It's more of a current one. I think this one was translated like in the '60s, um, but definitely recommend it. So we are done. Two-part two series. Two-part series. Two-part series on Hilary of Poitiers. Hope was very helpful. Again, I recommend going through it. I mean, I think it's like 500 pages. I could be wrong, but there's a lot to it. I, I you know, can only cover so much. Again, I'm thankful to the Lord raising him up and to really developing, advancing further the doctrine of God, the, the trinity of, of, our, of our God, and understanding that for us to give us a way to grasp that which is incomprehensible to us creatures. And so while, just like every theologian, uh, there's a stain on their shirt somewhere, but yet, by God's grace, we are all covered in white, in white robe. So um, with that, uh, yeah, have a good night, and we will see you next time.